live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening. Welcome to the Road to Recovery, or on the Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had a great weekend. Weather's been kind of nice, right? Not so horrible, not so horribly hot. Lots going on. The city's opening up, concerts again, right? But I'll tell you something. From COVID to the economy, let me tell you something. The mental health of Canadians is at a breaking point, an all-time low. Things are coming back to normal. We're coming back to normal in terms of our work. And now we can go to restaurants. We can travel, get on an airplane. I don't know how crazy that is for you, but... I've been on a couple of trips and it's pretty nuts when you get through that airport. But I'll tell you something. We're not really recognizing what we're leaving behind in the wake of this COVID disaster. Canadians just can't seem to get a break. Working professionals are experiencing increased strain on their emotional well-being, according to a recent report. The health, they found that the mental health of Canadians in June was at the lowest level since the height of the Omnicom wave in January of 20, uh, I guess, January of 2020. Though employees are returning to the office, as I said, the pressures to continue to impact work, inflation, no jobs, cost of food, like the cost of food is crazy. When you go to, you go to fill up at the, at, at the gas station, at the gas pump, it's, everything is through the roof. But what we're not paying attention to enough, certainly from where I sit, is the mental health disaster that's left behind in the wake of the COVID, um, the COVID, the two, the two and a half years of of uh, of COVID holdback of, of of having to deal with you know lockdown and isolation and fear and you know I, I mean masks are not a big deal I don't cause that a big deal but we really need to pay attention to the mental health of people you know I talk to to people in in, in business all the time in my coaching practice when we talk about the things they need to do for their employees. And it's like so foreign to them that it's that, you know, giving, giving your, your employees a Friday afternoon off or having them work, you know, half a day on, on a Monday or something to give them a chance to recover, right? Give them a chance to kind of catch their breath in life, so to speak. Some HR departments are developing superficial wellness and in, in initiatives that are kind of window dressing, right? But there's many that are spending real time, real money, frankly, on making sure they have coaches and therapists and people available to help their staff come back to some form of normal. LifeWorks, which is a great organization, a human resources service and technology company, they surveyed 3,000 working professionals across Canada and found that the overall mental health scores saw a precipitous drop in June down 0.8 points out of 100 from the previous month the most significant decrease since this past January. Nearly three in four Canadians reported feeling some impact of personal or work stress, according to the latest findings. You don't don't even have to look at a report. You just got to talk to your buddies. Everybody's a little bit more stressed out. Everyone's having just a harder time finding their calm. You know, Canadian mental health has been improving for four straight months before the dip in June. Indicators are still significantly lower, but the benchmark, Based on mental health data from 2017 through the 2019, the score index fell by 12 points. What does that mean? It means that we're not doing very well. We really haven't improved significantly since the beginning of the pandemic. We've just gone through different stages. People are just waiting. For, a lot of people are waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting for the next, the next wave, right? 
that creates great anxiety, that creates a lot of fear for something that hasn't happened yet. Seems odd, right? To spend your time and energy being concerned about something that hasn't happened yet. So the fear of, a, of the next pandemic, the next lockdown, is something that you got to let go. You know, we have to do a better job of living in the moment. Everyone who's listening to me out there, you need to, you need to get on your, onto some device, some electronic device, or go to the library and learn everything you can about mindfulness. Mindfulness. Living in the moment. And when you're learning about mindfulness and you've had enough of that, go and learn about cognitive behavioral therapy. What does that mean? Cognitive behavioral therapy is really simple. It's really about is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? So learning how to live in the moment, learning how to live in real time and looking at the real world that you're in and looking at it from the positive side, not the negative side. You know, if you look in a cloudy day just before a storm, I do all the time. I look up at the clouds and you know what? They're dark and they're gray and they're eerie looking, but they're so cool. And if you look carefully, you can find some ray of sunshine behind every dark day. And that's really the way we come back from this, my dear friends. We come back from this by learning how to stay in the moment, enjoying what we have right now, showing gratitude, making, making, maybe making a gratitude list, being grateful for what we have. Being happy that we're healthy, thankfully, hopefully, most of you, versus, versus what we were dealing with maybe a year or two years ago, big difference. And staying in the moment, thinking about today, because today is the only day you can do. You can't do tomorrow because it hasn't happened. You can't do yesterday because it's over. Today is the only day you can do. And if you do it properly, and you live in that moment, and you look for the sunshine in the dark clouds, and you don't let the small stuff stress you, so what? You know, so bag of chips is now $2.90 instead of $2.20. Don't buy it. You don't need it. It forces you to buy healthier foods. Fruits and vegetables are more expensive for sure, but they go a longer way, right? There's ways to live within this new normal, whatever this new normal is. But it's learning how to live in your skin, learning how to be comfortable with what you got and comfortable with where we're going to some degree. We don't have to fall apart. We don't have to stay in bed and not... Pull the, cover, pull the covers over our heads and just pretend we don't have to go anywhere. So dear, my dear friends, as you're listening to the show this evening and we're talking about all kinds of things, please stay focused on the good stuff around you. Please stay focused on the things that are important in your life that make a difference, that make you smile. And if you don't have anything to smile about, go find something to smile about because smiling is a really good tool to getting past that burnout stage and getting past that feeling of grief. Laughter, smiling, enjoying the day, finding that little bit of sunshine in a dark place and living for now and don't live for tomorrow. That's a big difference. It's going to help everybody out there and maybe all Canadians will reduce their stressful mental health issues. And we can look at some studies in a six month period and see how well we're doing. Anyway, when we come back, we have so much, so many other things to do. We're going to talk about, um, you know, kids eating uh, gummies full of THC that they shouldn't because they look like they're packaged like the real thing. we got all kinds of stuff to do tonight that, uh, should just help us do a little bit better moving forward on this road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You're on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, and you are listening to 640 Toronto. You know, on this show, we try to do all kinds of things that provide some input and advice and direction if we can. 
help people kind of get through the day. That's kind of the road to recovery concept. And, you know, we're always looking at things to help you improve your life, your lives of your children, if you have them, the lives of your family, if you have one. Uh, but just looking at things that just make life a little simpler, maybe go a little bit smoother for you, just kind of getting through the day with the least amount of stress possible. But, you know, it, it, a lot has to do with how you were raised, right? Uh, you know, we often talk to patients in my, in my practice, you know, one of the questions I ask is when you were 15, were you raised in a house that makes you feel good about yourself or bad about yourself? Kind of gives you an idea of how kids were raised at a young age. So if you're feeling addicted to your food, for example, right, your parents' drinking habits may actually have impacted and may impact your risk, right? So feeling addicted to food, right, it might come from an issue related to your parents. I know you can't blame your parents because you you can't stop eating, but we learn what we learn from the behaviors around us. So people with parents that have a history of alcohol problems are at much greater risk of showing signs of addiction to highly processed foods, according to a University of Michigan study. Foods like ice cream, chocolate, pizza, and fries, they're unnatural amounts of refined carbohydrates and fats. They trigger an addictive response in some people, not all people, but some people. The researchers wanted to know if a major risk factor for addiction was a parent with alcohol problems. Now, it could be alcohol or drug problems as far as I'm concerned. But as many as one in five people seem to show this clinically significant addiction to highly processed foods, marked by a loss of control over intake, intake intensive cravings, and inability to cut down despite negative consequences. Well, I'm certainly not an expert about this stuff, but I have one here with us. And her, her name is Natalie uh, Georgieva. I think I got that right, Georgieva. She's a registered dietitian, been on the show before, great, great guest, specializing in eating disorder dis uh, support with JM Nutrition. Um, hi, Natalie. Nice to see you again. Hi, Yona. Thanks so much for having me. And you got my name right, by the way, Georgieva. Yay, yay. <laughs> so I, I, I think I'm two for two or three for three tonight. Listen, yes. Na Natalie, how much, how much merit is there in this, in this, uh, uh, the, 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 the basis of this study? I mean, are people actually, are, are young people actually eating uh, these, you know, highly fat carbohydrate full foods because their parents have a drinking problem? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of clients that have some sort of disordered eating, uh, whether it's a diagnosed eating disorder, or in most cases, I would say undiagnosed. And I also like to ask clients about uh, what was food like growing up for you, right? And uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time, clients have some kind of, uh, you know, traumatic experience growing up or some kind of uh, early childhood trauma. And uh, I have heard of cases of uh, household substance abuse. Abuse, yeah. So more often than not, or not really? A lot of the time. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's uh, more often substance abuse per se, but some kind of negative experience with food growing up. So I have a lot of, I've had a lot of patients over the years with eating disorder issues, both eating too much, not eating enough, you know, the, the routine, right? Um, and many of them, you know, I, I find frankly that the, the ones that have moms in particular that are focused on like, you know, skinny, skinny waist and all that kind of stuff, it, the, the, the kids tend to be uh, opposite of that. They tend to want to either they don't want to go along because it's mom or, you know, they're so tired of hearing about it. They go the opposite way. Um, it's not just what parents eating habits are, but isn't it a lot to do with how they talk about it? 
Yes, absolutely. I would say when I ask clients about what food was like growing up, all too often what I hear is that as a child, they were exposed to their parents dieting, whether it's for the pursuit of weight loss or just being very heavily focused on their appearance. Some parents even promote dieting to their children and get them started on a diet at an early age. Not all of them, uh, but for the kids that were not necessarily put on a diet, they were still exposed to those dieting messages. And a lot of the times those children might have been deprived of those highly processed foods, right? And so what can end up happening later in life, and I've seen this with adults who had such experiences, is that because they didn't have exposure to those foods, because those foods were deemed as negative or bad, they end up being much more appealing once they're older and they have a little more control of their food environment. Yeah, do you find that that kids... like? What what kind of advice do you give parents in terms of positive discussion around food versus negative discussion around food? Yeah, so I often talk about food, especially with children and parents, I use the terms fuel food and fun food. So the idea of fuel food is, I love that. you know, I love that, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, So the idea is they're nutrient-rich foods that will give you energy, provide sustenance and nutrients that you need, right? So the protein, fat, complex carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables. And then the fun foods would be foods that maybe don't offer as much nutritional value, maybe don't fuel us the same way, but they offer pleasure because we don't just eat for the purpose of fuel. We'd be missing out on so many tasty foods otherwise, right? So we do want to have that fine balance. But then I also encourage parents too to, uh, you know, ideally not promote any dieting uh, to their children, or ideally if parents can try to stay away from the pursuit of weight loss, or if they do, to not make it uh, overly obvious to the kids or make comments about their weight or the child's weight. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a couple of uh, patients in my practice currently, uh, young young females under under twenty, and uh, they keep talking about thigh gap. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell thigh gap is. And then I figured it out. It's, you know, how much space there is between your thighs when you're walking. That, yes. that's, that's, a, that's a measure for how much weight they can gain or not gain. That, that's like bizarre. Yep. Yep. I've had clients discuss that as well or discussing, you know, cellulite or um, they'll yeah. do body checking in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Um, amazing. What, what, so we, in the last 30 seconds we have here, what advice can you give parents? Uh, about how to handle their discussion with children? Around food? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, from an early age, definitely trying to promote a healthy relationship with food and not eliminating any foods from the house, because in doing that, you're making those foods more desirable to your child later in life. There's this idea that, um, you know, if you eat these foods, it's a bad thing and a person can feel bad as a result when they're eating those foods. It can also lead to the child sneaking food. And I've seen that in quite a few instances because they feel guilty if they eat it or if they're caught with it. So trying not to eliminate any foods from the house and really trying to use that approach of uh, fuel foods versus fun foods and trying to get that balance. Well, I really appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Natalie. It's nice to have you back on. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll try this again sometime when next thing that comes up that's worth talking about. You're listening to uh, The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. We'll be right back. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto.
And welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. There's so much to do. And frankly, we don't have enough time to do it usually, but uh, we got a couple hours here and we're kind of getting close to the end of our first hour with uh, so many things going on. And so we talk about drug-free kids coming up and we're talking about all kinds of interesting things as it relates to uh, kids and violence and health and mental health and you know, all that kind of stuff. So if you don't know where you are, you're on the road to recovery. And I'm your host, Yona Bud, here at 640. We thank you so much for joining us. We know you have other choices, and we're glad that you choose us. You know, reading something um, recently that really caught my attention, as you know, if you've listened to the show for off and on for years, or as long as uh, I've been on air, both here and at other stations, I talk a lot about youth and gun, gang, gun and gang violence because it's really close to my heart. And um, I read an article here. Uh, that I that I thought I'd bring forth and just share with everybody. Um, and the, other, and, and the, ha- the caption goes like this: Why are they not hearing us? Students and youth workers talk about why they're really need, what they really need to cope with violence in their lives. So the constant stream of government meetings to discuss gun violence um, not has left a lot of youth workers, a lot of colleagues uh, in that field kind of fed up because they haven't been included in the chat. Why aren't they hearing us, according to the workers? You're saying that, that, that we're their voices, but you still don't, you're still not listening. You know, if you've heard other shows, we've talked about how we're just not engaging the, the right stakeholders. My friend Louis March from Zero Gun Violence uh, Movement talks a lot about stakeholders. Uh, if it's not the youth and the youth workers that are the stakeholders, who are they? Certainly not the politicians. So what we need to do is we need to get conversations going with people that are actually involved and affected in the stuff that we're talking about, living in communities where gun violence is really you know, affecting them, not just for those that are active in gang activity, but those trying to cope with just a, a normal, healthy day-to-day life in and around that kind of violence. We have a couple of guests here with me this evening uh, that are, are here to, to kind of help us understand this. Uh, we have our, our friend... Uh, his name is Deluxen. He is with uh, uh, Jane and Finch as well as Ayub Farah and Deluxe Yoga Raja. Uh, I hope I did a good job there, Deluxe. You got uh, it. Thanks, man. Uh, I practiced. Uh, we have them here joining us this evening. I'd like to join, invite you both. Uh, thanks for coming on, boys, uh, Deluxe and Ayub. Um, guys, first of all, uh, hats off to you for the, just the work that you do. And I know how tireless, you know, we were just talking to, to Deluxe a little earlier about the work I did back in the day at Jane and Finch. And, how it really hasn't changed that much. And we're trying to move forward and deal with mental health issues and such. So big hats off to you guys for being in the, in the trenches, so to speak. And uh, yeah, man, really appreciate you both joining us this evening. Um, first question I have is going to go to you. Oyub. Um, you're a youth outreach worker. So what are the kinds of things that you're hearing from youth um, with, you know, regarding the work that you're doing around gun violence in the city and their neighborhoods? Um, what are, what are kids telling you? Ayub? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so first of all, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm glad to be here and glad to be a part of this conversation today. So, I mean, there is a lot of things uh, I could start off with. Uh, but in a nutshell, the thing that's very clearly stated by youth kind of time and time again, all the youth that I've talked to around the GTA, uh, as well as different cities from my lived experiences, they're all kind of saying the same thing, especially in this intersectionality that's so unique being uh, black and Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what the youth are saying is, and this is undeniably clear uh, time and time again, is that the, the solutions that have been offered by people in positions of power are really piecemeal. 
they're ad hoc and borderline yeah. performative. Yeah. It's as if we're given breadcrumbs, but no yeah. oven. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, so, that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. The review of Roots of Youth Violence report uh, was commissioned by the government in 2008, uh, came up with all kinds of stuff and just no one even refers to it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, there's definitely, I'd say I'm not really surprised there. Uh, there's a lot going on and so, you know, what, are, what are you actually hearing, though? What, 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 are, what are the kids saying? What are families saying uh, that are living in the communities that you're working in? Um, what kind of feedback are you getting from them about, you know, I remember years ago, I had a bunch of, I had uh, Louis March and Marcel Wilson and I uh, on a show at a different, uh, different station. And we had a, a few, you had three youth on. And one of the questions I asked this 15 year old was, you know, what does the future look like for you? And he says, I hope I make it to 19. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what we're hearing? Yeah, that, that is the case at times. Uh, I, I think I want to paint a vivid picture right now for kind of all the, the listeners uh, yep. here. So imagine just feeling alienated by every sense of community in your life. Uh, that's sort of how Black Muslim youth feel. They definitely feel unheard, right? Uh, and so, you know, despite kind of a lot of the similarities uh, in, in terms of exposure and, and attitudes that they might share with non-Muslim peers uh, as these youth are growing up as first-generational uh, Africans, right, in, in yep. Canada. Uh, yep. At the same time, they're still experiencing such a different, drastically different life, right? And so uh, to put it this way, I mean, of course, coming in an age, of, you know, during a time of technological change, economic disruption, globalization, all these different things, yep. you start to, especially, you know, post 9-11 generation, uh, it's, it's really such a different time we're living in. And, and, and the fortunate truth for a lot of these youth are a majority of black youth are not Muslim and a majority of Muslim youth spaces are non-black, right? And so this puts the black Muslim youth in a difficult predicament. They're a racial minority within many Muslim communities and a religious minority amongst black Canadians. So with that comes a lot of anti-black no. racism, yeah. a lot of Islamophobia, right? And these and how, are how does all that relate to gun violence, though, Broski? Like, I mean, how, how does like how give me an idea how we tie that alienation, isolation uh, to the discussion around gun violence in the city? Oh, absolutely. So that brings me to my next point where it's like these these first generation kids uh, are, you know, with immigrant parents that fled war. And and so they don't understand their parents at home. They're not really right. connected with their culture. Their parents right. are dealing with their own trauma, just trying to hold on to the embers of what was once their you know, home and, and their culture. And right. so these kids are getting thrown into this brand new world. At home, there's confusion. In society, you know, at school, there's confusion. Uh, in society, they, at, at the large, they feel like they don't fit in at every single level of it all, right? And then at the same time, uh, you know, the people that are in positions of power kind of, there's not a lot of opportunities and spaces, right? There's not yeah. enough yeah. voices being heard through yeah. way of, having youth programs for these kids. There's not enough youth workers that have lived experience that know what they're speaking about, that actually lived through it, right? Uh, I know the Toronto Youth Cabinet, they had a report by the community yep. safety lead role. Her name was Zaina Hussain, and she released it, tw- uh, I think, a year or two ago. And one of the key findings she had was, you know, youth are, they know, I mean, we all know this, but, 
you know, it's 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 something that has to be stated again and again. Police. Okay, let, let me let me jump get, in on. Let, let me what? jump in. I, I hear you're very passionate, and I I'd love to have you keep going. I want to give my friend Deluxe uh, Deluxe something oh, to say no. here though. Um, if, if Deluxe, you spoke to the Star about this uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes you feel so left out of these discussions, you and your colleagues? Um, you know, I, I provide a first-hand account of uh, my experience in Jane and Finch because I was born and raised there as a youth. And uh, one of the privileges and blessings that I ever received was having the opportunity to come back in my neighborhood and work for the Jane and Finch Center yeah, and bring man. my own uh, lived experiences. Yep. So um, just to jump on on the question and, and see like what we're not receiving is that we're not receiving a lot of support from the politicians that are in the writings, right? We, we often see this every election where we see a rise in, you know, notoriety and appearances, but not a lot of support given to residents. Um, after the elections are done, again, it's the same four-year cycle that we're in, right? Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to reiterate is um, we need more support from the politicians, um, less photo ops and more programs for the youth, right? Um, Okay, so let me ask you something. For either, let's. Uh, I'll leave it with you for a second here, Deluxe. Come back. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, let let's answer this for me. What's what's one of the things you would like to see politicians do to bridge the gap uh, between uh, the people who are elected to take that job and, and the actual youth? What, what, you know, what are you thinking about? I mean, we talked years ago about a youth advisory board and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, I'll leave it with you for a sec, Deluxe, and then I'll come back to you for the same question. What are you looking for from the officials? Uh, we're looking for more support. We're looking for more funding to help um, aid in, in full uh, employment, for example, right? When youth yeah. have nothing else to do, they, yeah. they turn to um, other options, for example. Yeah. And as a community leader, this is something that we see often when we have conversations with youth on uh, what do they look for in life, right? And right. one of those things that g- helps ground us in society is employment. So if, if youth are feeling like the jobs that are, hiring right now are either not full they're not being paid a a reasonable wage you know all these things um there's a lot of outcomes can can turn to this right there's violence that could arise yeah um um in the education system for example i do think it is just uh proportionate as well right um the systemic racism that exists in the education system is very apparent for black and brown uh students of color um so, Ayub, yep. a- 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 I'm going to go to you for a second here. Um, I just because you have such limited time, I- I'd love to give you both both more time. But Ayub, a- the same same question to you: If you were sitting with the politicians, I mean, obviously, money's the key thing. Jobs are important. Um, you know, the question is, you know, are are we finding jobs within their own communities, within their own Muslim communities? There, you know, like you know, are, are are for example, I live in a in the Jewish community where where I am. I'm pretty active in that community. You know, we sort of, you know, there's you know, young Jewish kids that are looking for jobs usually end up going somewhere where there's a, a Jewish store owner. And typically there's some kind of, you know, you know connection that helps them along the way. It, forgetting the politicians for a second, um, uh, Ayub, is this, is this something that is happening? Is this something you're trying to make happen? Or where are we in terms of just inter-community opportunities? And that's the first question. The second question is, how do you compete with 500 bucks a day slinging dope versus, you know, 120 bucks working a good job at even 19 bucks an hour. Okay. So uh, for the first, for the first question, um, you know, it's kind of hard to separate. Uh, I know you mentioned, let's put aside for a second, you know, the people that uh, 
policymakers and changers and yep. that sort of thing. Yep. But yep. it's just so connected. I mean, just to answer your question straightforward, uh, for youth, it's it's a lot like Deluxin was saying, right? Okay. Uh, things simply like divest, you know, divest, uh, divesting from in the from the police and investing in communities. I know one of the biggest things in a lot of community organizations I see, which yeah. of course is hand in hand with a lot of the youth getting the resources they need to get the job opportunities they need, right? To feel safe in these communities and these spaces to 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 basically broaden their sense of scope of of life, generally speaking. But one thing we see time and time again is that a lot of the grants and the funding given to organizations are really small micro grants. You know what I mean? And so they're never given more, like it's rare you'll see given more than a year or two, right? So this is just, it's it's kind of in a sense where it's like, we're trying to help, but uh, some people, uh, their opinion is that they're, they're not standing by what they're saying, right? Right. Uh, back to what I was saying earlier, some youth say that it's it's performative to a degree, right? And so we need things like more preventative uh, measures and less reactionary measures, right? We need we need these Black Muslim youth uh, to actually be in these conversations more, and, and yeah. more so we need experienced and trust experienced and trusted yeah. community leaders to be hired. And and one of the biggest things uh, we really need to see, and there's been kind of a change in the city, is that you know, the community resources are more easily accessible and not really hidden. You know what yeah, I mean? Sure. It's, you, know, you don't have to learn this language to play this game. I mean, yep. something as simple as having a 24-7 phone line in yep. the community, by the community, would yep. be great, just at the minimum. That is the bare minimum, in yep. my opinion. Uh, and so these interventions for mental health su- services at a young age, early stages, can have a, you know, the question I ask, I'll leave it at this is, and get into your next question is how can we expect communities to kind of have faith and trust in a system that continuously ignores the underlying issues and inequities faced by those who are part of marginalized yeah. communities? And, and yeah. that was a question that was, um, you know, something that, like I said, I think about a lot. And I was actually posed by one of the youth in one of our findings when I was speaking to them. And so it's, it's the youth are saying a lot. It's just one, maybe falling on deaf ears or it's not being echoed. Uh, and it's not going to the, the platforms like that this aren't doing to. enough that they should exactly. And so to your next question, comparing, I'll keep it short because of time, but yeah, I want to uh, give the Lex a shot here too. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can just, uh, if, if the, okay. Yeah, Lex so, and let me throw that over to you just because we're running yeah. out of time here. Um, you know, I've often asked the question, by the way, you guys are both extremely articulate about what you do and it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you. Just so you know, Deluxin, like, you know, compared to sling and dope, Hard mm-hmm. to get a job, hard to get a job out there at even 18, 19, 20 bucks an hour. If you're fortunate, forget the $15 minimum. How do you mm-hmm. compare? How do you compare sling, you know, working for, you know, 120 bucks a day when you can make that in an hour slinging dope on the corner? It's a hard comparison. Um, mm-hmm. How do we, how do we, cha- how do we deal with that challenge? The, the you know, the, the, the actual comparative income versus, you know, what's really available. Mm-hmm. And I could draw from my experience studying from my undergrad in criminology. Um, the criminal justice system is no joke. Um, again, when you're talking about risk and reward, there's more risk, right? Yeah. And once you're in the justice system, you're in it. You're in a revolving door. And for certain offenses, you're looking at about three to five years, especially, right? So yeah. if you're looking about mitigating risk and rewards, I think we need more role models. One of the biggest things that I like to do in my community is I'm very hands-on. I, I go to the communities. I'm very connected to the, the Jane and Finch communities. A lot of the youth that I know now 
we've all went to middle school to high school together, right? And yeah. one of the biggest yeah. things that we like to focus on, uh, focus on is guiding the youth, right? Um, we understand that life is not perfect. And we understand that, you know, sometimes, you know, tough times require tough people, right? So one of my biggest things and advice to the youth is, is that you gotta, you gotta, you gotta weigh the cost, right? It's, it's, you gotta look at the numbers and see like, okay, if exactly. I'm making more here, yep. I'm, I'm risking something, right? There's always yep. something There's a cost the, and benefit. Risk, the risk and reward cost benefit. You know what guys, I, I'm, I'm running out of time. Uh, I'm talking to Ayub and Deluxe both involved in the Jane and Finch community. Um, I'd love to be, uh, I'd love to get you guys back on again uh, down the road here, chat some more. I will definitely have you come back. We've got so much more to do here on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show this evening. You're listening to Road to Recovery. You're on the Road to Recovery, I should say. You're listening to Yona Bud. I'm your host this evening here at 640. Thank you so much for joining us. Have you ever seen what the gummy packages look like? For gummy, you know, gummy uh, weed candies or edible chocolates or edible suckers, right? They look almost identical to the non, uh, the non THC, the non cannabis uh, um, lookalike buddy, right? So at the the article I'm referring to is bags look well known chips or candies. What's inside could harm children. That's really what we're talking about here is how to deal with the issues around children and making sure they're not hurting themselves. At first glance, it looks like a single serving of nerds rope that your child might eat as a treat, but take a closer look. The word medicated and the small white box at the bottom says 600 milligrams of THC. That's a lot of THC. Eating even a small fraction of that bag could overwhelm a kid, make them very sick, overdose and so on. Another candy package um, came up that people are looking at these labeled uh, 500 milligrams of THC, but it looks exactly like a bag of Doritos containing tons, you know, six, 700 milligrams of THC, the nerd rope knockoffs. So eating 500 to 600 milligrams of THC is considered a huge dose, even for an adult. So uh, if you eat the whole package, it could be pretty miserable, right? Like you could really get very, very sick. So the reputable businesses, people in the cannabis do not engage in this kind of conduct. However, there are many people who are packaging edibles that are engaged in this. Many cannabis edible companies are overstepping on marketing in an egregious way. And we all know where that's going. Manufacturers of various major candy and chip brands, such as Mars and Wrigley and the Hershey company uh, are very much against uh, this whole thing. So the problem that we're having is the packaging looks safe and it looks like something good that a kid might eat, but extremely dangerous um, if in fact they do. So what do we do about it, right? How do we, how do we, how do we manage this going forward? So I have, I have a guest joining me this evening, and we're talking about um, uh, about this type of, of packaging. She's a director. Her name is Chantelle uh, Verlerand, and she's the executive director of Drug Free Kids Canada. Chantelle, thanks for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. The pleasure. Um, York yesterday, York Regional Police mentioned uh, they they released a, a report around uh, a huge um, stash of fentanyl. Um, cannabis products packaged like children's candies. They seize fentanyl and cannabis packaged like children's candy, in case you didn't hear me the first time. Is that something that happens more often than we realize, Chantel? Give us an idea of what that world really looks like based on the input that you've got. 
Well, the, the, the prevalence of it, we know that um, the hospitalization rates for kids um, having accidentally ingested um, cannabis products are on the rise. Um, um, but we also know that there's strict regulations around um, packaging cannabis through um, the Cannabis Act. So um, parents have to be on the lookout because these may not be the products that they buy themselves, for example, and that they're okay. safely storing at home. Um, these can be found online on the black market because, um, you know, in Canada, edibles are supposed to be properly labeled with a warning sign. There's a lot of regulations around that. Um, but unfortunately, you know, um, these products are easily accessible on the market and it can fall into the hands of a, a child who wouldn't know the difference, but also maybe a teen who would know the difference, um, is thinking that is eating, um, you know, cannabis edibles, but at the same time, they may not know that it is from the illegal market and may not know as well that the THC level is not as advertised or a lot higher than, than they would be capable of, of taking. So what are, you know, what are you telling parents and how are we making sure that parents, you know, what messaging is sent, if any, uh, from your organization, whether it's through the media or otherwise, how are we letting people know that this is something they need to pay attention to? The first step is to educate yourself as a parent to know what the regulations are around the packaging, what you should be looking at the packaging to know if it's legal or not. But at the end of the day, um, it's it's knowing that, you know, it's supposed to be child resistance. Um, they're not supposed to be character, animals, shapes, um, uh, fun colors, fun fonts that, that, you know, you're referring to some brand names. They're not supposed to be replicating um, right. what's out there. Um, so that's the first thing. But the second thing that we tell parents is have age appropriate conversation with your kids. Talk about the risk of taking something that is not supposed to be what you're supposed to be taking, you know, so you start at an early age um, and you let them know what the risk inherent to um, taking um, edible cannabis can be um, combined with alcohol, for example, kids may not know, teens may not know that, you know, when you're having an edible, there's a delayed effect. Um, you don't know really how you're going to react and when it's going to kick in. And, and the danger is that a kid may overconsume edibles thinking it's not affecting me. And then the high kicks in three, four hours later, yeah, and yeah. they've combined alcohol with that. So yeah. it's having open conversation that are based on facts and evidence and, and talk about your concerns with your kids and get them to ask you questions as well. People don't really understand. We've got a couple of minutes left here. We're just going to get, get some stuff done together if we can. But people don't understand. There's a, a study published in the Journal of Pediatrics, and they examined calls to regional poison centers from 2017 to 2019. And they found 4,000, 4,172 cannabis exposure cases in the U.S. among children nine years and old, nine years old, up to nine years old, excuse me. Nearly half of those calls involved cannabis uh, edible overdoses. So people have to understand that what we're talking here uh, is that this is a real thing. It's just not mm -hmm. just something that happens once in, a, once in a blue moon. It's a big deal. Really kind of quickly in the last minute we've got here, can you tell me uh, a simple way for parents to, to make sure that what the kids have in their pockets, in their hands is the real deal? Is there any way to look at what's harmless versus harmful? 
For sure. You can look at the barcode and, and, and go and, and check it out online to be able to see if it actually exists as a legitimate thing. Check out the THC level. Ask your kids if they're aware. Well, your kids, I'm talking about if the teenager is, 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 he, is your teenager making an informed decision about what they're using? Are they aware of the THC level? Where did they buy it from? These are the kind of questions that you have to ask openly so the kids you know, when they make those decisions, they make the decision from themselves, but they're, they're being informed. They know what they're taking. They know what it's from. They know the THC level. And remind parents to safely store your cannabis products in home, in the home, right? So a cookie is a cookie for uh, a kid who's four or five years old. So make sure that you safely store them and make sure that you engage in those conversations so that kids know. I'm talking to Chantel Valoran. She's the executive director of Drug-Free Kids Canada. Uh, you should definitely check out that website if you have any questions about drug-related stuff uh, as it impacts your kids. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Chantel. We'd love to have you come back. Uh, we've got more stuff to do here. Please stay with us. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie. Welcome back. Thanks so much much for uh, joining us this evening problem in the u.s is that there's an issue with um there's an issue with um uh, a deficiency in in methadone for those that are in need and the problem is that um the you know I don't, first of all let me take you back to the whole process so if someone has a problem with methadone with uh, opioids and they're in a treatment program they manage to be able to uh use the support of uh, methadone or buprenorphine, which is um, suboxone. Buprenorphine is like a kind of a newer version of a uh, an opioid antagonist. Um, and by the way, if you're just clicking in here, you're on the road to recovery. My name's Yona Bud. Sorry for the technical difficulties, uh, but you are listening to 640 Toronto, and we're happy to have you here with us. Um, so the problem is that people that are in need of this medication, um, it, it's the difference between whether they go out and use or not in many cases. Uh, it definitely helps through the aches and pains and withdrawal of getting off of, um, you know, getting off of the medication, of, you know, getting off of the drug itself. The medication helps you kind of um, deal with the aches and pains, the withdrawal, the, the, the cravings and so on. The difficulty is that most people don't understand that it's harder to get off of some of these antagonists um, such as you know um, methadone or suboxone. Difficult to get off of this stuff. Some, some patients have told me it's actually harder to get off of the medication than it is the drug itself. Um, but the nation's supply of methadone in the U.S., which is a U.S. study, uh, fell uh, 20% per capita in the second quarter of 2020 compared to the first quarter of the same year. Um, marking the biggest decrease over the last decade. Now, we're talking about an opioid crisis, right? So we know that nationally, maybe, you know, internationally, there is a problem with those that are using opioids either from the street or um, in some cases um, even those that are using um, pharmacy-supplied uh, opioids still having a hard time those that are getting it from the street are getting something that's tainted as you've all heard of fentanyl right so the the fentanyl is what's causing everybody to die and that's the big issue so methadone 
Suboxone is used now to help people so they don't have the cravings and the need to use the drugs that are killing them. So the, in Canada, we uh, certainly in Ontario, we supply um, most folks who are on uh, public assistance that are in need of this. Uh, they get more. They get Suboxone or um, uh, Methadone for free. It's it's included in the in their healthcare pro, uh, program. Uh, in the U.S., I'm not sure. I think some of it, a lot of it, is supplied by your insurance company. Uh, but for individuals, there's also a program for those that can get it supplied by free. Uh, by the why the, the the problem is that people who can't access it uh, end up going through severe withdrawal and usually end up using the street drugs that again we talked about that are killing them. So the methadone supply had decreased significantly during the fourth month of 2016 and then it declined 14 percent again in 2018 dropped another 13 percent but according to the study um it's if you look at it the in in, in contrast the use of suboxone has gone up the most recent decline in 2020 is unique um, as a supply of methadone uh, the, the, the supply is just essentially down. As of uh, June 20, just reading the study here, the supply of June 2021 remaining below 2019 levels. Study found increases in per capita supply of uh, brifenorphine, uh, suboxone. Uh, so suboxone is a clean, neat and tidy little pill. Methadone is a drink. Um, methadone has different uh, impacts on your body. Um, Suboxone or buprenorphine um, was all, is also used in mental health, helps with so certain uh, issues with anxiety and so on. So it's been around for a while, but it's it's costly. It's more costly than methadone, which is why the governments around the world that use it um, still lean towards methadone. And typically, if you're if you're a user of it. Like if you require either of the medications, um, it takes time before they trust you, so to speak, to take your medications home. So if during the pandemic people weren't accessing it because they couldn't get to the clinics because many of the clinics were closed, uh, then the government in the U.S., they decided that they would change their policy um, and allow people, let me read this here, and allow people to actually have relatives pick up their medications for, so you earn the privilege to take home a week at a time, you earn the privilege to take home 30 days at a time, so when we have patients, for example, at the farm in Stouffville, uh, which is my uh, one of my residential treatment facilities, uh, that is a, a, you know, we have people that come in on methadone, for example, um, they require, we require coordination between our medical and nursing staff, um, and their medical people from the clinic uh, will will have will arrange for it to be picked up, and we hold it and dispense it through our nursing staff and uh, and uh, the doctor who oversees all of our patients. So, um, it's it's this, the methadone can only be dispensed in the U.S. though by nearly 2,000 opioid treatment programs. So it has to be certified by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services admin and historically require more methadone patients to visit a treatment program daily to receive a dose than can be monitored by the staff available. So the requirements around distributing the methadone itself made access to methadone even tougher for patients, especially as we talked about the early months of the pandemic. 
Um, by contrast, there's been much more concerted effort by government regulators to expand access to bupropramine for years. So it's easier, let me read this here, uh, prior to the pandemic, bupropramine can be prescribed uh, by any clinician. So, so the pill itself, Suboxone, can be supplied by any clinician who received a waiver to dispense the medication to a specific number of patients. Uh, that exempts both healthcare professionals, the Department of Healthcare, more completing certification requirements. So you need to be certified to obtain a waiver, but it's easier to, to dispense Suboxone or Bimprofamine than it is to uh, dispense methadone. It's harder to get a, me a license to dispense methadone in the U.S. Uh, sort of the same here. Uh, there are treatment centers in uh, Ontario and Canada that are set up specifically uh, the Ontario Addiction Treatment Centers, OATC, have offices all over Canada. They got, and they're, they're ARA regulated uh, suboxone or, or uh, methadone and uh, uh, suboxone dispensing facility. They also have, many of their locations have pharmacies on site. They have uh, medical practitioners, actual doctors who you either see virtually or see in person to ensure that they're dispensing it properly and so on. Um, the, the problem in the U.S. here is that they're they're reducing the access by closing by by not increasing the number of facilities, not increasing the number of centers, and relying more on clinicians. So relying more on you sort of going to your family doctor or to a family medical practice, if you will, um, more so than going to an addiction uh, practice. Uh, addiction medicine doctors in the U.S. are difficult to find. I would say the same for Canada, uh, but. The Department of, um, in April 2021, uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released new practicing guidelines. So it, that exempted, actually, most healthcare professionals from completing certification requirements, which allowed them to prescribe uh, buprenorphine up to 30 patients. So you can have up to 30 patients in your practice. Um, by the way, methadone and suboxone um, can also be misused, right? They can be, uh, so for example, I know a lot of patients that were opioid users, uh, a lot of people, not necessarily patients of mine, but a lot of people that are uh, opioid users and they come off of their opioids, they got on Suboxone or Methadone, Methadone more specifically, which makes it a lot easier to use uh, up drugs, like you know, opioids or down drugs, up drugs, amphetamines, cocaine, um, methamphetamine, that kind of stuff. So they, they're pretty good. And you have, to, you have to pass a urine test. So one of the biggest businesses that I've seen come out of all of this is there's people in the parking lot selling uh, vials of clean urine so that you can go inside and somehow figure out a way to pass your test. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a process for sure, helping a lot of people. Uh, but it's a band-aid. It's not a long-term solution. Uh, therapy is the is the solution that uh, we're looking for to help people get through what causes them to make decisions or require um, these kinds of street drugs, alcohol, things like that, to make them hide from whatever is causing their pain. Can't really get that through a pill, but it's a good start in keeping people from dying at least and killing themselves with uh, you know tainted medical uh, tainted uh, street supply of drugs. When we come back, um, you'll be joined by a good friend of mine, Mar Marcel Wilson. We're going to talk about what's going on in the Swansea uh, uh, complex. It's a very sad story and certainly has my ire up a little bit because I've been reading about what they've known about this prior to um, this whole crash of ceilings and such. We're going to come back here. You're on the road to recovery, but please join me. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud.
only on 640 Toronto. Thank you so much and welcome back. You're on the road to recovery here with Yona Bud. I'm your host here at 640 Toronto. We're in the studio with Stefan, Natasha, and we've got my good friend Sophia in the background just making sure everything flows smoothly. We're looking forward to hearing from you if you're involved in the Swansea um, Swansea Muse community issue. If you're one of those that have been displaced or know a family that's been displaced, we'd like to hear from you. 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. If you're involved at all in this uh, fiasco, this terrible situation, uh, please give us a call. We'd like to get you on the air so we can talk about it along with our guest who's going to join us here in a minute. So if you don't know, there was a ceiling that collapsed in a community called Swansea Muse. Uh, began uh, the, the actual exodus from it, having people leave the facility, uh, began on May 27th when a heavy slab of concrete broke loose from the ceiling of a townhouse. It landed and seriously injured a resident who was then taken to the hospital. Ordered that the disaster spread quickly. Neighbors gathered the Toronto Community Housing Corp. Staff went door to door. Further collapses across the complex could be ruled, couldn't be ruled out. In the ensuing weeks, two more ceilings failed under testing by engineers, and everyone in Swansea should leave according to TCHC. Uh, but the order lack, uh, lacking legal authority, many chose to stay. City issued an emergency order, uh, so on. Swansea Muse, a winding, it's described as a winding maze of townhomes just west of High Park, quickly became a picture of mass disruption. A community of some 400 people suddenly uprooted, scattered across the city in the span of a few weeks. Some were forced to move repeatedly to motels, college dormitories, Regent Park apartments that were once slated for demolition while waiting for a new home. So what, what we're going to get to here is something that really bothers me, but this goes on. That This is something they've known for some time. I'm going to ask my friend and my brother, um, Marcel Wilson. He's the founder of One by One Movement, uh, I believe raised in Swansea Muse. They're helping the families and uh, those that are, uh, you know, displaced, uh, trying to deal with the issues, uh, the least of which is what happens when young people move from one gang territory to another puts them at risk. Marcel, welcome. I hope you're well this evening, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on. So, I, I was going to get into reading some of this, but I, let's talk about it instead. As I start to do my research, as you know, I'm, uh, it, it matters to you, so it matters to me, uh, and it should matter to everybody. Uh, these people are being treated, the folks in this community being treated like a disposable population. When I look at some of the material, brother, they've known about this for years. Most definitely. Um, for the project slated for 2016, um, where about $30 million was supposed to go into a revitalization type project. And, you know, when I'm at the t we've had plenty of town halls since this uh, tragedy has happened. And one of the questions um, that the residents and myself, you know, constantly asked was, why did this not happen and where did the money go? And their, you know, response was that they didn't have enough money. And, you know, I've worked in other neighborhoods, so like Alexander Park, wonderful re revitalization going on over there, new units. Yeah. Um, same with Regent Park. So, yeah. yes, they, they've known. Swansea has been falling apart since I left in two, the year 2000. There have been um, these, these things in the garage that are, I guess, essentially holding up the ceiling. Um, and have been there since I left in, in the year 2000. So they've known. 
It says here an internal database in 2017 showed repairing Swansea would cost 42% of what it would cost to replace the complex, one of the worst ratios across hundreds of TCHE communities. In 2019, federal officials entered TCHE's long-standing plea for financial help, promising $1.3 billion for repairs across all buildings. It's now, what, 2022? Where's all that cash, like you said? What's the answer? Yeah, well, we, we've been constantly asking them, you know, and, and the problems the problems that we find with the town halls is, you know, we, what our role is one by one has been, one, I lived in the community, I have a personal attachment with it, but it's been to, to be there and help guide them and keep them organized because we find a lot of times when there's trage tragedies in communities, it, they sort of depend on the chaos. They, they depend yeah. Yeah. On, yeah. on the fact that residents are are discombobulated and they're going to be angry and shout. So that's what they kind of gear up and get ready for. They're not ready for when a community comes organized and has, uh, you know, some, some pointing questions. So when we asked those questions, we always got back, we'll have to get back to you on that. We'll have to get back to you on that. But do, do they not realize that we're, I mean, we're talking about, you know, what, 400, 400 units and how many residents per unit? We're talking got to be affecting over a thousand people right somewhere in around there yes so what's on the ground there right now brother what's what's the latest what's what's uh what's happening that up to date well what we're dealing with now is obviously you know all the residents have been displaced um as the article pointed out they have been being moved around from hotels to dormitories into neighborhoods that weren't as peaceful as Swansea was and then there's the whole issue as far as the youth the youth in Swansea you know have some some beef and issues like that with other neighborhoods and TCH is not taking into account those those things those nuances that are happening and just kind of plopping them everywhere and I mean we're talking about people who now have to travel over an hour to get to work who uh, you know, their kids are ripped out of schools, their friendships are, 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 are broken, you know, uh, even even down to the animals uh, feeling displaced and uh, acting yeah, out. no kidding. Yeah. So it's completely, it's, it's a complete mess, you know, unfortunately. And, and we've asked TCH, how could they not have a contingency plan for a potential disaster like this? No what, are, what is what is the city? I mean, what do the city say? I mean, how do they say? I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. I mean, you know, uh, they they can't run and hide from this. It's interesting because once the city got involved, it turned into sort of a blame game, um, where the city didn't want to really take responsibility for for any of the things that were happening. Uh, you know, it was like this is a Toronto community housing problem, and we back our partners. So. You know, we're, we're doing our best to support them. And then when it came to the court order, when it came down to the, the, the judge declaring the place unsafe and that people had to leave, and I do want to make one correction of, in the article, is that um, yeah. in the article it states that people said, uh, it says that people wanted to stay or chose to. That's not true. Everyone understood that it's a dangerous place. It's just they wanted to be moved in a humane fashion. Yeah. I can tell you on the ground there was one day, Yona, where they were going to physically remove everyone. It was actually the first day that one by one stepped in. They had brought about seven to ten TTC buses 
an army of, of, of MTHA security and police, and it was very intimidating. Um, and and the, the residents are asking, what's happening? What's happening? Well, you know, these are going to be temporary shelters, buses. So come on. I'm telling you, we called the local politicians. We called the media to come down, and then they backed off. Wow. Wow. Interesting. You know, when during the pandemic, when we needed to create hospitals and we needed to create spaces for people to get injections and to get, you know, to, to be isolated, suddenly the army's involved and, uh, you know, there's tents up in parking lots and, you know, these, these guys have makeshift hospitals, makeshift, uh, you know, housing facilities, so to speak, in a medical uh, type structure. Where's all that? Like, I'm sure there's got to be a nice, you know, a giant piece of property somewhere. Put up some decent barracks of some sort that at least keep everybody together and so on. It's just, I don't understand why the thinking is so, um, like I say, when I started this, the beginning of this session or segment with you, it seems like they're being, this, the community, your friends, your family, your, you know, our neighbors um, are feeling, you know, they're treated like disposable population. Like, you know, no one cares because they're not really paying for their rent. So, like, it's it's just a horrible mindset. Um, how do we over? How are we going to overcome this beyond just the relocation of people? Well, I think it starts with with, with, with the perception of, of of the public and wh how they feel about people who live in public housing. One thing I really want your listeners to understand: ninety percent. More, maybe more, of the people who live in these communities are hard-working people who are trying really hard to, to, to get out of this situation. You know, I would say 10% or less are people who, you know, quote-unquote, depend on the system or abuse it or use it. There are those people. Um, yeah. and, or, or, or that, you know, they're a part of a gang or some type of criminality. So the majority of these populations, you know, they work. They're your teachers. They're the people who served you food in, in the restaurants. They're the people who are, who are dealing with you in the grocery stores. People who are really trying to work their way out of these situations. And I think if the public viewed um, people who live in, in, in housing more as humans, as people, as their neighbor, as their brother, as their sister, you know, that they, they would care more. And therefore, the powers that be would react differently to when that population is going through something like this. Well, maybe next weekend we should uh, get put together a couple of segments that gives us almost, uh, I don't know, 20-odd minutes. Um, maybe we can get three or four people, some people from the community that you can put together, and let's introduce them to my audience. And let's let them tell the world how it feels to be shifted around and moved around. I mean, if you want to put that together, let's, uh, let's let the world meet uh, the wonderful people from Swansea. Um, well, but no makes sense. Makes sense, right? I mean, let's, uh, the best best I can do is offer you a microphone, right, brother? Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about how it's affecting the youth. You were talking about kids and and the and the gang culture and so on. And, well, not so much kids and the gang culture, but the crossing of lines and so on. Try to explain that a little bit to our audience who, who probably don't understand what it means to cross uh, lines of color, so to speak. Well, first, at first, I want I want to make clear that. You know, not all these youths are, are, are in gangs. Um, exactly. A lot of the times, the, the, the violence that we see in the city that's deemed as gang-affiliated or related is actually what we call neighborhood uh, or, or area-related. So 
there may be a gang, let's say, that operates in one neighborhood, and the youth, or, you know, not all the youth are a part of that gang, but if they go to another neighborhood or anywhere near another neighborhood where there's an opposing gang, simply because they're from this area, they're deemed an enemy. So what we're seeing now is with this whole debacle is, you know, they're, they're removing families based on the head of the household, which is, in this case, a lot of the times the mother. And, you know, mom is going through a lot of stuff, uprooted life, and they're, they're, giving op- they're given options in, in, in under this duress to say, you have to make a choice and pick one of these other um, Toronto community housing locations to move to immediately. So you're not given time to think about it. You're not, you know, and a lot of the times the moms don't even understand this, the quote-unquote street politics. So they're going to go based on going to see the unit, if it's the cleanest one, etc. What we've been trying to do is get TCH and the mothers to consult yeah. with their children. Um, oh, and, and, and this also helps to open up the family. Let's talk about some real things. You know, like, is there an area you can't go to? Because what we don't want to happen is go from this tragedy and have youths dying. Because exactly. simply next because thing you know, we have gunshot. Gun, yeah, next thing you have gunfire everywhere, right? Absolutely. Well, listen, brother, uh, we got about a minute left. Real quick, what's the future of Swansea look like, do you think? Well, it's grim. We know that it's going to take at least a few years uh, before Swansea is built back. Um, you know, who, a lot of these uh, children and families will have aged out by the time the quote-unquote new Swansea News is built. And, you know, we're going to continue working with these families. They're still family to me. They're still Swansea. And, you know, they're going to work in these new areas that they're placed as ambassadors of one, of one by one and ambassadors of their neighborhoods. So we're going to empower them. We're going to keep them strong, and we're going to keep working with them. Brother, blessings and prayers to you and to everybody there. And uh, just thankfully, you and your team are out there to help. And without you, I don't know where these folks would be. But let's see if we can throw something together for next weekend. We can talk about it through the week. I'm talking to Marcel Wilson. Uh, he's my brother. He's my friend. Founder of One by One Movement, uh, trying to help glue the folks together in the Swansea Muse debacle where TCH has really let them down. So is the city. Uh, so have all of us. And it's, it, these are our neighbors, ladies and gentlemen. And um, yeah, it's just un- it's just not cool maybe you can hook up with one by one you can reach them online um maybe make some donations some clothes some food some money some time something to see if we can help these folks uh um, make their lives just a little bit better when we come back we're going to talk about highly potent weed here on the road to recovery this is yona bud 640 toronto you're listening to road to recovery with yona bud only on 640 toronto Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your adult, the seniors in your life, your pets? If you don't know where you are, you need to go find them. And if you can't find them, you need to call 911 if you're concerned that they may not be well. You can always reach out to us. We'll do what we can to help. 416-870-6400. If you want to reach me through the week anytime, you can call me at 877-777-5808. Or send me an email, recovery at 640toronto.com. And my name is Yona Bud, and I'd love to chat with you. If you're a weed smoker, come on, there's a bunch of you out there. I can see you looking at you're hiding. We're not going to tell anybody, I promise, but give us a call. 
416-870-6400. If you're out of the area, 888-225-8255. want to hear from you. I want to understand if you're like me and just noticed that the weed today is so much more potent than it was when we were kids. Stuff we were getting from Mexico and Jamaica and the odd friends of ours that were growing up north. I mean, the stuff was good, got your buzz real good, but this stuff is like ridiculously high in TAC. Highly potent weed creating marijuana, marijuana addicts worldwide study says, call me if you think I'm out of line here in saying that the weed that we're getting today, especially in Canada and the U.S., is out of control in terms of the height of the amount of THC. Tetrahydrocannabinols. That's what THC stands for. That's the part of the marijuana plant, the cannabis plant that gets you high. The other part, CBD, Charlie, Bob, David, that's the part that we talk about that we're using much more so for medical benefits, anxiety, depression, pain, trauma, um, and so on. Compared, so the, the, the marijuana plant that makes you high is causing more people to become addicted in the parts of the world a new review of a study found. Compared with people who use lower potency products, like typically 5 to 10 milligrams per, uh, per gram per THC. So typical weed on, if you go to the Ontario Cannabis Store, anywhere from 11 to 12 percent, up to as high as 26 or 27 percent. You can buy infused marijuana, uh, pre-rolled marijuana joints, if you will, uh, that are infused, and the THC count can be as high as 36 to 38 percent. That's ridiculous. So scientists have established standard THC unit of 5 milligrams of THC for research. The amount is said to produce a mild intoxication of non-regular users. Come on, there's got to be people out there that smoke weed for sure and want to talk to me about it. 416-870-6400. Come on, pick up the phone, dial out, give us a shout. We'd love to talk to you. Everybody in my back room there is kind of lonely. They're missing some callers. They only get to talk to themselves and listen to me. And, you know, maybe that's not too much when you're doing it all the time. One of the highest quality studies included in our publication found that the use of high potency cannabis compared to low potency cannabis will link to a fourfold increase in addiction. So it makes sense, right? The more potent the product, the more often you need to recover from you, you want more of it. The more buzz you get, the higher you get, the more you want to chase it, I suppose, uh, which is what the study is supporting. Um, this study was co-authored by Tom Friedman. He's a senior lecturer uh, he works in the Department of Psychology and the Director of Addiction and Mental Health um, at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. By the way, the UK is doing all kinds of really amazing studies on cannabis and how it affects people. So the third or fourth study I've talked about, uh, I think, since January. In the United States, about 3 in 10 people who use marijuana have cannabis use disorder, right? 30%. It's a big number, no? Um, the medical term for marijuana addiction. Uh, the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction found 76% inc- uh, rise excuse me, in people entering treatment for cannabis addiction over the past decade. Cannabis potencies continue to rise during the same time. So cannabis manufacturers, uh, those that are supplying finished products, more you know, the, the actual uh, joints and flour, uh, they push to get as high a rating of THC as you can because the average person buys it based on that and if you're a real you know smoker a real stoner so to speak 
uh, the higher the THC, the more you want to, that, that's what you want, right? That's the weed that you want to have. Uh, in a gram of herbal cannabis, the dried and harvested tops of female marijuana plants are typically smoked. Concentrations increase by approximately 2.9 milligrams each year. Uh, THC levels increase by approximately 5.7 milligrams. Okay, that's irrelevant. It's a relevant part of the study. While people try to adjust their consumption when the potency of their cannabis varies, such as by adding less cannabis to their joint or inhaling less deeply. It's another way to have less of it affect you, by the way, if you're learning how to smoke. Um, that means the higher the potency product delivers a larger dose of THC. So the, 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 the bigger the joint, the more you smoke, the, the more deeply you inhale, the more you're affected by the THC. So the, the, the question right now becomes, you know, how aware are people of, you know, the level of THC in the marijuana that they're using, especially in edibles? Um, you got to be very, very careful because you think it's not going to be a big deal, and you know you, ha you eat some, and then you don't think you're you're getting stoned at all, so you eat some more. But some of this stuff is really, really potent, uh, which is why we're talking about psychoses with teenagers, young kids that are smoking uh, weed consistently, are, are coming out with real psychotic issues. Um, you know, some of them are feeling uh, somewhat schizophrenic and delusional, and so on, just from highly potent weed. So uh, something to pay attention to. And uh, speaking of kids smoking weed and getting high, let's take a pivot here and talk about kids, little kids, which I love talking about. When we come back, we're going to talk about their art and how they get the gallery treatment and what we learn from kids and the stuff they draw. We'll be right back here on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome. If you're just joining us on the tail end, getting ready for the news, you're in the right spot. You've dialed the right number. We'll be right with you with you, the news. But right now, you're on the tail end of the trip here, Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, and I'm your host here at 640. Talk about things that we try to help people, help each other, and help one another. That's what we try to do here uh, on this show. Uh, but if you're sticking around, you're going to listen just before the news here. Check this out. Secret Lives of Children. Kids Art Gets the Gallery Treatment from 2017 to 2019. The open mic series, Grown-Ups Read Things They Wrote. As kids delighted audiences across the country by offering exactly what it is the title promised. Adults adopting, for the most part, an earnest and straightforward style reading, writing they produced as children. So why is it hard, so hard to understand children, even our own? Even when we remember what happened, humans don't retain the experiences before they're about two, apparently. I'm not sure. Psychologists may disagree. But after that, things start to stick. Emotional moments, big situations, disappointments, humiliations, you know, all that stuff. After the age of eight, we can hold on to a whole bunch of experiences, lots of volumes of experiences. The experts say field trips, friendships, the days and weeks that follow an encounter with a disaster, God forbid, or real loss. Yet there's a difference between remembering an event and remembering its peculiar, peculiar subjective reality for children we were. So uh, when we're looking, so children as its um, childhood has its own logic, its own concerns, its own sort of morality and structure, if you will. Uh, that's what makes grown-ups read things, uh, grown-ups read things very funny. Adults who aren't kids anymore uh, read what they wrote as children. Now, perhaps more than ever, we're surrounded by portraits of kids who promise to bring uh, some bridge to this disconnect, right? School-age YouTubers make their childhood consumable for all of us on, uh, on, uh, on, on, on different social media platforms. 
gaming, posting, and brands, supplied outfits, and so on. So, it, it, come on, like, if, you, if you're looking at the 2021 movie starring uh, Jacques and, uh, Phoenix as a radio producer looking after his nine-year-old nephew, featured real interviews with ordinary kids talking about their hopes and fears. So the deal is, we're talking about children here. These children are, um, as adults see them, uh, these children, as adults see them, as precarious and articulate, proficient. The, exhi the exhibition that we're talking about is called Evidence. It's on display at Mercer Union until August 20. It takes a different track. The curator, I'm reading here, of course, Amy Zion has assembled a group of artists who take art by children on its own terms, treat it seriously enough to make it the basis of their own work. So there's an undercurrent of trauma, if you will, that runs through many of the works that these felt that these folks are recreating. The Cree children um, in a particular film describes adventures with parents and siblings, but were interviewed at the residential school they attended. Those who created the images of uh, Mueller's animals in this particular instance seemed to protect were refugees of the seemed to protect were refugees of the Spanish Civil War. So some of the art that goes back in some of the current stuff from these children uh, is able to track back into some of the heritage. Um, the, the art reflects the sensibilities and inner lives of individual kids. The article goes on to say, and does so according to um, aesthetic rules unique to children as a group. The psychologist and early childhood educator Rhonda Kellogg uh, Kellogg, excuse me, argued in her 1969 book, Analyzing Children's Art. So she su she suggests that um, more than two million drawings supplied the original uh, set of paintings um, he calls for um, forgeries or failures. So there's an artist called Bellet, and he does a bunch of paintings based on kids. So what we're talking about is right now art doesn't necessarily teach creativity um but it teaches it, it, see if art doesn't necessarily be used to treat creativity with children it gives them an opportunity though to often a platform to let stuff out and it helps identify you know motor skills learning the color inside the lines all that kind of stuff but when you let kids draw i do it all the time with you know little you know if i'm you know, with a patient and they have a child, we'll give them a pen, you know, something to play with and keep them busy. And it's really interesting to see what little kids draw. And they typically draw things that are in their lives. So in children's art provides the possibility of something else, something less filtered and more accessible, the article goes on to say. Perhaps the children themselves, at least two museums, the Toronto Royal Ontario Museum and the International Museum of Children's Art in Oslo, Norway, hosted exhibitions of these pandemic creations. Images of masks and viruses dominate many of the submissions, but so simple, so do simple figures. Boxy little cars, pointy roof houses, the same ones that appeared in the works by children in evidence and in, forget, and in forgotten file folders that are hidden away in countless children's homes. So when your kids are drawing or if you get an opportunity to draw with them, talk to them about what they're drawing. What, is, what does that mean? What's that look like? Why is it that color? Right? They don't have to be exposing something traumatic or dramatic. It just might be something really interesting that they saw or were a part of. You know, something they might have seen at school, or a new piece of fruit that some friend of theirs had at lunchtime. You know, we live in a in a in a very diverse culture. Kids kids sitting down to lunch today, not everyone has peanut butter and jam or tuna. By the way, tuna's horrible to send your kids to school with, they smell all day. But seriously. 
kids are coming with different kinds of foods from different parts of the world and they're swapping and they're changing and they're you know experiencing each other's stuff right but they draw pictures of cars and, ch and other children and animals and their home and their adults in their life so drawing with your kids is a really good idea and leafing through the, the leafing through their old stuff as they get older really helps them reattach to their youth and helps you helps them re Re, re, sort of reconnect in terms of where they're going as children. Perhaps gives them a little bit more, um, a little bit more security, knowing that their past is clearly connected to their future. And look at how beautiful these drawings are, and so on. It's opportunity to really bond. Thank you for so much for joining us this evening. I hope you enjoyed the show and have learned something. And apologize again for some of the technical difficulties, but it's radio, right? Nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect in any of our lives. Someone once said to me, I was uh, attended a funeral on Friday. Unfortunately, I'm at the age where my friends are losing their parents, as I lost my mom recently. And uh, the rabbi who spoke at the funeral said that uh, the, mother, the woman who died was a, a teacher. And he said, the words that we're taught, that we continue to teach our children, is the legacy for those that matter to us and from the past. So teach your children good things. Teach each other good things and spread those good words. Spread kindness. Spread nice. Like my mom said, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Love you guys. We'll see you next week on the Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto.